This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. So at this point, I'm pleased to bring up Chris Walden, our, what do we call an ex-president, an (laughs) ex-president, an incredible instrument writer and all, to introduce our very special guest who I will not name. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much. All right. Um, Well, it's great to be back here. I missed you guys all very much. just to say a few words about our um, guest speaker today. Uh, we've been trying to get him for some time now, and um, not only is he a good friend of mine, we worked tons together, but um, he's someone I really look up to, who I, his music sort of listened to even before I got into the business and inspired me and um, motivated me. And the more I'm really proud that I do got a chance to work with him, um, he's a very accomplished man who worked with everybody in the industry from Quincy Jones to Michael Jackson and uh, he recently won an Emmy for his music directing job at the uh, Stevie Wonder special. He just two days ago music directed the Grammys and so it's just, it, it doesn't even make sense to mention any more names. It, it's, it makes more sense to mention the ones he has not worked with because there are very few. So please uh, help me to give a warm welcome to great music director, keyboardist, and my friend, Greg Fillingaines. You gotta be, you look up to me, that's, that's crazy. It's, with, the, with the kind of work you do, uh, you're way past me, buddy. Hi, well, this will be quick. Um, <laughs> this, uh, thank you all um, for coming, all 25 of you, really appreciate it. I really do. I do. It's tough because, um, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what I've done, all the accolades. It, it really means uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it cannot compare uh, or even closely to the fact that I had to tear myself away from my twin 10-month-old boys who have colds. And I left my wife at home alone. Because our mother-in-law had to be away all day, and you know, so it's it's really tough. So um, I'm sure uh, you have other things to do too. So we can start, and then we can all get the hell out of here. What do you say? Um, I, <laughs> uh, I this is my first time ever doing anything. Like, well, anything like this. Um, for oh, thank you, and that's why for this. For this organization, I mean, I, I've uh, spoken to schools before and, you know, done the occasional clinic, but this is specific to arranging, which is something um, that I would say is um, more of a strength of mine and it's something I really, really enjoy doing. Um, and while there are uh, fantastic arrangers, uh, you know, legendary rangers, you know, from uh, Basie to Neil Hefty, to, you know, 
um, uh, Shelley Berg, Johnny Mandel, you know, um, Chris Walden. Uh, I've learned a lot um, lately from uh, not only those gentlemen, but, uh, you know, other contemporaries like David Foster, for instance. I've learned a lot from him um, as far as how to bring out, uh, how, how to make the vocalist um, sound the best that they can, you know, and setting them up to where they're completely comfortable and always making room for the money note. And you got to have at least at least one money note. I mean, more is icing, but you got to have at least one money note that they know is a guarantee and uh, will, uh, you know, cement the entire uh, song, you know, and, and uh, uh, make it complete and whole and special. So, um, yeah, uh, that's pretty much my deal. I don't, I can't think of anything else right now. So please, if you have any questions, please, please ask because it's better that way because then I can, you know, um, I'll have a lot more to say then. <laughs> Hi. Oh, and by the way, I can't even see. Hi. Oh, for a couple, a couple days ago, it wasn't big at all. I had a four piece horn section, uh, a rhythm section, w one guitar, uh, bass, a second keyboardist, uh, percussion and three backgrounds. Uh, I was, uh, I was asked to do three, uh, different segments. The one involving the band was, uh, for the tribute to Lionel Richie. And we had, uh, several artists involved, uh, John Legend, Megan Trainer, uh, Demi Lovato, Luke Bryan, and Tyrese. And, you know, ending with Lionel himself coming up to join everyone. And um, um, that was pretty straight ahead. But I think the trickiest part was accommodating Demi. Um, because there was, a, you know, the order was John Legend doing Easy and then um, going into Demi Lovato doing Hello. And, you know, I wanted Demi to do Hello. It was actually slated for someone else, but I wanted her to do it because I knew she could kill it because I saw her. Uh, on this Women of Billboard special, and she murdered that song that she did. It's, I think it's called, I can't even remember the name of it, but you have to look it up, Women in Billboard, and she just slayed them. I mean, she was pretty much flawless. She's a very high, powerful voice, you know. And um, so uh, that was that. And then I was asked to uh, do a mashup track for Andra Day and Ellie Goulding to sing their two hits on. And so the the uh, challenge there was um, uh, putting both of their, you know, combining both of their songs and 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 uh, keeping them in the same tempo, even though they're kind of different. Well, they're drastically different to me because Andrew Day's song is, uh, you know, her hit is called "Rise Up," and it's her in a piano. And later on, there's uh, you know strings and background vocals, but it's pretty sparse. You know, it's pretty minimalist. Uh, Ellie Goulding's hit, however, is Love Me Like You Do from the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, movie. And it's a big old track with, you know, uh, you know, drums with effects on it and backgrounds and all this stuff on it. So the challenge was like, OK, how do you make both of those fit 
and and and, and fits seamlessly. So uh, this is the uh, the joy of using uh, modern technology because uh, I was able to fit Andrew's song, the parts that I wanted to fit inside Ellie's song. Uh, using some technology called oh crap I don't remember but it, it's it's um, there's a program for Logic and a program for a similar program for Pro Tools where you're a- actually able to stretch a track to have it fit in a different tempo without it sounding you know without affecting uh, you know the pitch or anything and that was really cool so I, that was the 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 foundation for that and then I recorded some things um, over that because uh, for instance. Whereas Andra's um, song is mostly acoustic, Ellie wanted to have an acoustic feel for the first time she comes in for her entrance because it started off with Andra doing like basically, you know, a third of her song. And then it goes from that into Ellie doing her first verse. So I I, uh, muted, uh, you know, the elements in Ellie's track and then I replaced it with an acoustic guitar uh, played by yours truly thank you on the Korg Kronos thank you and then I added some acoustic piano so it was kind of seamless and what what you hear is the acoustic guitar now um, uh, you know introducing her first verse and then it built from there Uh, and the third thing I was asked to do was to um, play electric piano with a fantastic artist named Miguel. And what we did was one minute of She's Out of My Life. The reason why this is so significant to me is because I did it originally with the other Miguel. So now I'm the bridge between two guys named Miguel. And um, they they actually... Uh, mention that in 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 the copy that Miguel was to to say. And he started off by mentioning the fact that I, you know, played on on that original recording. It was really, really I mean, I, I felt like I won. I felt like an award winner because of that. Because not only did the entire Staples Center audience know that, but everybody watching around the world, you know, realized that now. And it was really, really very special for me. Um, and, you know, after the show, my phone was blowing up and emails and everything. And it was, and, and I'm still recovering from answering all the, the well wishers, but all that, uh, was marred by the fact that when I woke up this morning, I realized that I had not in fact put the chicken soup back in the fridge. That now it sounds funny, but you have to understand my mother in law slaved over that yesterday because it was to feed the twins who are sick. So that was ruined, and I had to throw it away. And I woke up realized I just, you know, I, we went downstairs, and my wife said, You didn't put it away. So all the accolades, all everything that I experienced, all the highs that I experienced the last 24 hours just went to shit. Because I forgot to put the chicken in. So that's my life, you know. I mean, over here, the Grammys, you know, the big time stuff. But at home, I'm the guy that picks up the dog poop in the backyard. And I better, 
make sure that I put the chicken soup in the fridge. And my, and, you know, my wife is a singer; she gets it, you know. But I, it's just, it was uh, really, I felt horrible this morning, and said, and then it's like, okay, I have to come and do this. So that was uh, what I did for that show. Thank you. Right. Anything else? Well, I'm very happy to tell you that story. Um, uh, I started playing when I was two by ear. And, um, you know, I went on to take, uh, you know, formal lessons uh, from around six to, say, 17 or so. Um, uh, Detroit. I'm from Detroit. And um, so, obviously, I grew up with Motown and, you know, rock and roll and stack sound and, you know, the British invasion and everything. And it was an incredibly exciting time, um, you know, being a child of the 60s. And, you know, so I listened to I, I, I was I was uh, I was exposed to all kinds of music, you know. I'd studied classical. I was actually there was uh, you know back in in uh, in in the good times when there was actually funding for things like this. There was not only the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, there was the Detroit Youth Symphony Orchestra, and I played celeste in the Detroit Youth Symphony Orchestra. And on Saturdays, I would take the bus, go downtown, and uh, rehearse, and it was just. Fantastic! I thought, this is cool. This is great. I'm in the Detroit Youth Symphony, and then um, uh, later on, the, the last uh, uh, teacher that uh, my mom arranged for me to have, because um, she realized I needed more discipline at that point. You know, in my teenage years, I was thinking I was kind of hot snot. You know, and uh, I needed more discipline. Uh, so she managed to uh, connect me with the pianist with the Detroit Symphony. His name was Misha Kotler. And he was a no-nonsense, you know, uh, Russian Jewish guy. And he, he, could, he could break a pane of glass with his middle finger. Like, he could crack a pane of glass. Like, he was strong, you know, and, and very, you know, uh, dominant and scared the hell out of me, you know, which is exactly what I needed, you know. Um, but all right, so fast forward to how I got the uh, break. I was a mad fan of Stevie. I, you know, listened to him religiously. I had uh, posters of him on my bedroom walls. I internalized his music. I just had this deep connection with him. And I remember in high school telling friends of mine that I would eventually play with him. I never met him before. I'd only seen him twice in concert. But I just, man, when I saw him, it was just like thunder shooting through me, you know, lightning, you know. And, and, uh, there was a uh, good friend of mine who was asked to audition for Stevie uh, uh, on drums. And um, he was asked to, to go to New York and audition for Stevie on drums. So the night before he, he left, I went to see him because I was so excited for him and I wanted to support him. And uh, it, was a, it was a thrilling moment. I went there and we, you know, we're just in the basement. And he's packing and everything and we're um, talking about what could happen. And he insisted at that time that I, I uh, play some things on a cassette. Now you all, you're, I know you know what cassettes are. Uh, and um, so I did, I played some things, but I played them the way he did on his records. So he would know that I 
kind of understand how he thinks, at least stylistically. Uh, one of those things was you are the sunshine of my life. And there were a couple other things. So he took the tape and, and he went to New York and then some time passed. Um, it was probably like a couple, three days, but it felt like a, a year. And he called me, my friend called me and said, Stevie wants to see you in New York today. <laughs> you mean today, today is it today? So I'm running around the house like a banshee packing, you know, and my mom was on her way to work. She's like, what does the matter with you? I said, Stevie wants to see me in New York. So, so, and then the mic fell down and everything. And so, um, uh, I packed and I left the house, but I was given instructions on my way to the airport. I had to stop by Stevie's house to pick up one of his brothers to go to the airport. So now I'm in Stevie Wonder's house and I'm like, okay, I'm in Stevie Wonder's house now. Waiting to get one of his brothers to go to the airport. All right. And I'm just looking around the living room, and I'm seeing pictures and stuff, and it's like, this is crazy right now. So we go to the airport, and I go to New York, and I get settled at the hotel, and go to the studio, the original Hit Factory. And I'm waiting on him on pins and needles, and I'm trying to be cool, and I'm trying not to be, you know, uh, overly excited, and I'm just sitting there, and finally... The, and you can see in the monitor, the elevator door opens, and here he comes walking in, man, with the thing. And with his his uh, his sister Renee uh, led him in, and and that first handshake, man, was life changing. That's when I met him, and 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 we we uh, talked, and he uh, showed me some stuff, and you know played around a little bit, and that was it. And then the next day was more the formal audition. And it was between me and this uh, older-looking white guy. And I remember that, uh, uh, you know, some of the band members during the course of the day would just come up to me and go, it's okay, you got it, don't worry about it. So I played, and uh, and then um, later that evening on the way back to the studio, I'm in the car with Steve, and uh, he turns around and says, so how does it feel to be a member of Wonderlove? So, I, you know, my mind is racing at this point because I heard all kinds of stories like he's a practical joker. You never know if you can trust him or not. And so I, I said, are you serious? And he said, of course. I said, well, would you mind telling my mom? Because I figured he wouldn't lie to her. So we get to the studio. I call the house. I give him the phone. The first voice mom hears is his telling her that uh, he, you know, he likes me. He wants me in his band and he'll take care of me and all this kind of stuff. And he gave and he gave the phone back. And, you know, for the next 10 minutes, this is what you heard. <laughs> so, you know, we were kind of excited. And then I went back to get the rest of my stuff and then I uh, moved to New York. And uh, it was the perfect time to be in New York. It was uh, springtime in New York, April. April 2nd was when he asked me the question. And um, it was a month before I turned 19 and a month before he turned 25. And he was working on songs in the key of life then. Let's go over this again. He was a month before turning 25 working on songs in the key of life. This is after Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions and fulfilling this first finale, 25, working on that. 
I went on to play on four songs on an album. Now, you're probably wondering what happened to my friend. He did not get the gig. But Roy Ayers, you know who Roy Ayers is, right? So he was hanging around at the time, and he says, well, if you don't get it with him, you got it with me. So he went on with Roy and eventually, you know, worked with many different artists and went back to uh, uh, Stevie later on and ended up with him and Phil Collins and everybody else. And um, he was a great friend, and I say that... uh, with sadness because he's no longer here. He passed uh, a few years ago and his name was Ricky Lawson. Yes, sir. Yes. So, uh, uh, awesome Lawson. I knew him as a kid. We were in a band together. I used to go with one of his sisters. Um, and he was a dear, dear, beautiful spirit. And that's the kind of friend he was, you know, he would do anything for people he loved. And I mean, anything, um, so uh, that's that story. 1975. Yep, so do the math, kids. I'm, I'm joining you really soon. I'm crossing over. This year, I'm crossing over, man. Crossing over to that number with the six in it. Yes, I know what this means. You're thinking, well, damn, you're going to have 10-year-olds when you're 70. Yes, I know. I know. I we we already worked it out. I have a young newbile wife. It's okay. Um. So yeah. Anything else, please, please. Yes. Oh, you must think I have a regular schedule. Oh, I get it. That's what you. No, cousin, I don't have a schedule breakdown at all. I have uh, the only thing that breaks down is my hair in the morning. Uh, I have. No, I I, I don't. I mean. You know, the the mentoring thing, I, I, I love the idea of it, but I haven't been able to work it in practically. Um, I have spoken in schools before, and uh, I like to encourage kids as much as possible, but not quite there yet. Um, you know, people ask if I give lessons. It's like, no, I'm still trying to learn myself. You know, So, unfortunately, no. And then, you know, when you have twin boys along with your 10-year-old daughter you know the time is is tricky to manage um and then you know of course the first priority is trying to find work cuz i got to pay for all this so um <laughs> so yeah no i i would like to um certainly and i'm i'm sure that at some point you know there will be opportunities for that yes sir Oh right. Well, that was uh, uh, that. Well, at that time, he actually uh, was bi-coastal. Um, but we were in New York, April and May, and then in June, uh, they said California is the place you ought to be. So we loaded up the truck and we moved to Beverly, and we came out here. And he had a house here uh, up on Mulholland, and it actually was in the area where he took the cover shot for talking book, you know, he's sitting on a hill. Well, that's off of Mulholland and his, his house was, you know, sort of in that area. And, um, so yeah, so that was June and I've been here ever since. Um, so that was really, I've been here all my adult life. Oh man. Yeah. I, oh, that was legendary, man. I mean, you know, you never knew, 
Uh, but look, you're on retainer. So when he says come down, you're going to come down. And, and even when he says come down, that doesn't mean you're going to start working immediately. You know, and I, not only the 3 a.m. calls, but the 3 a.m. calls and you had to go to Irvine and you live in West Hollywood. There was a studio called IAM. I can't believe I remember that because I don't remember anything. But there's a studio. I don't even know if it still exists, but it was called IAM. And we, we I remember you take the 405, you go all the way down and it's in Irvine. And uh, we just go there and do his bidding. I remember actually watching the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind like the, in its entirety while waiting for him in that, <laughs> in that studio. Um, but yeah, but, but it was a great time because he did, there was a lot more interaction with him and, you know, we not only worked with him in the studio, but we would have like uh, uh, legendary, you know, um, uh, long rehearsal sessions and and that was my training i mean it was like wonder university because we would go in and out of all kinds of genres at any given point and uh he understands the essence of each genre so you're able to go in and and play the the elements that that define country, for instance, or define gospel, or define classical, uh, or define rock and roll, or define reggae. And it was really a lot of fun. It was an incredible um, uh, training ground. It was very fertile, and we were all sponges uh, in the band, and, you know, uh, it, it inspired us to write on our own and, and experiment, you know. And uh, it, was, it was an incredible time. And I was with him uh, for about four years, from 75 till the beginning of 79. Uh, well, uh, Denise Williams was, she had just left, right, when I joined. But on drums was Raymond Pounds and Shirley Brewer. Shirley Brewer is the girl who sings that uh, response in Ordinary Pain when she goes, you just a that's Shirley. And uh, Suze Green. And there was one other who I can't remember as far as backgrounds. Huh? Well, he didn't sing. He He's the bass player. And I say he is because he's still with him. He was with him, you know, since electricity. And, uh, uh, and, oh, and uh, Ben Bridges and Mike Cimbello. Wrong guitar. Um, but, 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 oh, and we had legendary horn players. We had Hank Red on sax, man, and uh, um, uh, Trevor Lawrence Sr. had just left too before I joined, and his son Trevor Lawrence Jr. is a is a great drummer uh, who I've worked with many times. He did the Grammys with me, and uh, who else? Who else on on scene? Oh yeah, that's it. That was pretty much it. Um, was there percussion when I was there? I don't think so. If there was, I don't remember. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a great band and and very eclectic and um, you know all kinds of influences that we learned um, from each other. It's great, you know. It's like Mike Cimbello was a huge uh, Pat Martino devotee, and I learned about Pat from Michael, you know, and um, so. 
But it's great. We we all it was a it was a it was a nice big family. I left in '79 because uh, honestly things were getting stagnant with him, and uh, you know he means well, but he's not always able to deliver on promises, however well intended. And he swore up and down that Wonder Love was going to do an album, and we, you know, we were all over it, and we we stayed with him, you know, and uh, he led us through various phases of belief that it was going to happen. And uh, after one, after the after this particular uh, situation, I thought, well, you know what, this really isn't quite going to happen. I mean, I know he may want it to, but it's not really going to happen. So I made the very tough decision to go because, you know, you, you get to a point where it's it's do or die. If you don't make a move, you stay. And if you stay, you won't go. You Because, because at that point you realize, okay, uh, I've decided to stay. And then that, that increases the fear of wanting to leave. Uh, at any point in the future, so it was a tough decision, but I I uh, I did it. Um, what happened after that was <laughs> I decided I should get married. <laughs> I got married way too young. I'm not going to go into that because this is the uh, arrangers summit, not the marriage counseling summit. <laughs> so I got married, and then. Um, uh, uh, that was, um, yeah, that was right at the end of, no, it was, it was 79, beginning of 79. And then, uh, but later in 79, um, uh, I went on tour with George Benson. And this is when he was flaming hot. I mean, he's, you know, on Broadway and, you know, uh, masquerade, uh, you know, um, breezing, you know, I mean, and he was, man. And it was such a fantastic uh, time. It was me and Randy Waldman on keys. And, uh, you know, he was the brilliant conductor, piano player type. And I was the crazy, wacky synth electric piano guy. And um, we had a blast. And he, um, I, I'm known for doing certain impressions. And one of them is Ed Sullivan. And I used to do it all the time, like backstage. And, stuff. and one day... I did it one too many times, and George actually said, you know, you should go out there and do that. I said, I'll where? He said, to the audience. I'm like, are you kidding me? He says, no, you should do it. One show, I went out as Ed and introduced George and the band, and from that point on, I did it for the rest of the tour. It was great. I mean, I did the whole, I was like, <laughs> and then I would have to turn back around and go to my keyboard and, and start the show. Uh, and I will always love George for that because he just, you know, he's very spontaneous. And if he dug something, he just lets you do it. So uh, that was that. Okay. Um, right. So any arranging qu uh, questions? Well, I, I, yeah, arranging certainly is, is uh, yeah, absolutely. And I also love doing TV stuff. I love doing TV stuff. Yeah. I love doing live TV stuff. I love doing the Grammys. Uh, I did the the 60th Emmys, and and I arranged uh, a a medley of uh, TV theme songs for Josh Groban to sing, and that was fun. Um, and um, 
Wow. I just, and, and live events, you know, either MDing or MDing producing live events. Uh, there's a live event that I was one of the producers on that sadly did not make it to TV, but it was one of the greatest moments of my career. And I did a tribute to Bill Withers at Carnegie Hall. And let me tell you something, maybe I, you know, uh, networks slept on that. You know, I tried, uh, but uh, networks sometimes are very smart. Let me tell you who I had. Uh, my first call was to Ed Sheeran, who said absolutely yes. I had Ed Sheeran, I had Gregory Porter, Valerie Simpson, Aloe Black, who just slayed them. Uh, oh, Mike McDonald, did I mention him? Uh, Keb Moe. Uh, Jonathan Butler, Lettucey, uh, Dr. Freakin' John. I got Dr. John. You know, and uh, um, D'Angelo was supposed to do it, but he bailed. He pulled out. And, uh, of course, we didn't find that out until the day before, and I was a little upset. But uh, I asked, or was it two days before? It was like two, two days before, but still very sudden. And I asked... Um, and he was supposed to do Use Me, right? So I, I can you imagine D'Angelo doing Use Me? He was supposed to do that, and and I and um, but in rehearsal we were messing around, uh, uh, having just uh, you know uh, rehearsed one of the things that Dr. John was supposed to do, and I mentioned that I mentioned that to the band about you know D'Angelo pulling out and um, um, you know. He was going to do Use Me. And so the guys immediately started doing Use Me in like a New Orleans funky kind of thing. And I was like, oh, no, I got to ask Dr. John for that. So I asked and he said, yes, man. Until you use me, uh. oh, until you use me, uh. it was so funky, and he just no network, but it was great. I mean, and uh, uh, Aloe Black did one of two songs, and um, uh, one of them was called um, uh, "Hope She'll Be Happier" from the live at Carnegie Hall album. He went, and so he's, most people don't know who Aloe is. He came out, man, and he was like Bocelli. He stood in one space and just sang, and the delivery was operatic. It was like Bocelli, and he, the audience was fried. They couldn't believe what they were listening to, and they couldn't wait to give him a standing ovation. He just murdered it. I'm so happy. But Mike McDonald did uh, um, Lean On Me, you know, with children's choir. It was, it was incredible. And... Um, so that was one of my great, but I really do enjoy TV and arranging for, uh, oh, and, 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 and uh, a cool challenge was um, arranging the song that Lettucey did because it was, um, I wanted her to do uh, Who Is He and What Is He to You is the actual title, but of course for her it was Who Is She and What Is She to You. And, um, uh, you know, it, it when arranging, Obviously, it's it's more fun and more exciting when you know who you're arranging for and you know their range and you know what they can do. 
and the thing about Lettucey, well, she has a great range, first of all, and she's all attitude. She's just attitude, just, you know. So I had to, uh, I had to uh, make sure that was, you know, displayed in the arrangement. So, um, the, because uh, I told her, I said, I want you to sing it like you remember every guy that did you wrong just pissed you off and she came out man and she looked dead at him and was just like <laughs> it was great it was fantastic you know so that's what I love doing I, I love and you know live events TV um, producing you know studio as well it doesn't happen very often but but I, I'm really enjoying uh, TV yes 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 sir I'll play that I'll play this thing because I thank you because I actually wanted to play this particular thing I did and then um then I may play one other thing that's recorded, um, and then we can go. But, um, uh, of course, one of my favorite artists is Bill Withers, and another one of my favorite artists, Patty Austin, who uh, I've done a ton of arrangements for. And we have a very, very special bond. Um, we're, we're able to bring out the best in each other. And I don't really know why, but it just, it just works. And uh, I, again, I've done several arrangements for her, but it's one she wanted me to do an arrangement of Lean On Me. And it's like, oh, how do you make that special? Of course, Lean On Me is a brilliantly simple song and it goes right to the heart and it's very direct and you know it, it, that's the, the the kind of writer Bill is um, he just knows how to connect on the uh, simplest but most profound terms and uh, you know make the whole world sing you know you got it it doesn't get much simpler than that Now, as simple and as beautiful as that is, um, the challenge is taking it to a level of even more depth, if that's even possible, and bringing out new emotions for um, a, a female voice, you know? And, but, but keeping the 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 majestic nature of the song and well how do you do that um well you know i mentioned before that uh, i learned many things from foster and my approach to that arrangement started out by asking the question what would foster do so i came up with this Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrows But if we are wise 
We know that there's always tomorrow. I don't remember all the lyrics, but please swallow your pride if I have you need to borrow all oh, no one can bear those at their knees that you can't let show lean on me when you're not strong be your strength I'll help you carry on for won't be long I'm gonna need somebody to lead on Yes, sir. That's an excellent question. You're absolutely right because, oh no, 95% of producing is psychology. Uh, or, or being a music director, same thing. And uh, because as a music director, you are the one that is not only the liaison between the artist and the band and the production, but you're the one that takes all the heat. Um, 
you also have to be the calmest one in the room. Because everybody, it's amazing. Everybody in TV land just freaks out. They just, ah! They just, they just call, they lose their minds, man. It's like, what the hell? It's, this is music. This ain't brain surgery. This is music. And the people just, you, and please do not be late or don't be where they can't find you because they will lose their mind. He's not here. He's not here. He's not here. He's not here. And they're talking about me, the MD. It's like, he's not here. He's not here. It's like, it's fine. I'm here. I'm always where I'm supposed to be. Um, but uh, you, you have to be the calmest one because you have to, um, there, there's, a, there's a few levels of it. First of all, you cannot be an effective leader until you know how to follow. Um, and as uh, Nadia Boulanger taught Quincy, you will never be more of a musician than you are a human being. Um, I take those things very, very seriously. Also, um, it is, it's not just what you're leading uh, it's how you're leading. And I do not subscribe to leading by intimidation because I don't understand how that works. Um, we, we are blessed to provide joy to the masses. So how then can you be stressed if you're trying to provide joy? I don't understand how that works. But you are a product of your environment. Now, I fortunately learn from the best uh you know i spend a lot of time with a guy named quincy jones who knows how to make everybody feel like they're the only one in the room and you know just by the fact that you're in the same room with him that you know by virtue of that you know he assumes that you're worth being there so that 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 uh inspires you or motivates you to want to do the best you can for him just by being with him. And he expects it, but he expects it in a very quiet way. And he knows how to bring the best out of you um, with joy, you know, and love and not intimidation. And uh, also I'm, I'm not selective uh, in who I'm, uh, nice to, you know, he's got some guys that, uh, you know, treat, uh, the crew like crap, you know, and suck up to the producers. And, and they also treat the band like crap too, to try to throw their little weight around. You know, like, no, cause all those crew people that you shit on, the right opportunity comes, they'll do it right back to you. Um, so it is basically about following the 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 uh, one of the first rules that God set up: uh, do unto others as you would have done to you. It's just that fundamental, um, and you will become far more effective that way. Yes, do we have a problem? Yeah, I am. You know what? The funny thing is about that. To that point, people. Are, are, are surprised when they work with me. Like musicians, they're like, wow, it, it's so much fun. I'm like, as opposed to what? <laughs> what did you think we were doing? This ain't construction. You know, we're, we're not building a rocket. This is, you know, this is, we're making music. Because if you're not having fun, how do you expect anybody else to? It's so fundamentally simple. It's incredible. 
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.